Once again, good morning. We are certainly glad that you are here. For those of you who are visiting, and I did meet a few at least in the foyer back. I know I have at least a few. I'm looking around and I'm seeing more than a few. We are very glad you're here. Thank you for coming, being a part of us today. It means an awful lot to us. And I'm glad the way you got to witness what we did in the beginning and uh, highlighting and emphasizing and really more importantly praying for uh, you saw a rather large, massive group of our church family here who are involved on some level or another of, uh, of, of mission efforts. Uh, and all of them are being, in our minds, shot out of the quiver of our church family here and uh, going to many places, and uh, they're sacrificing their comfort, their time, their money, their emotional resources, uh, just so many things to, to be able to, to do something that is dear to us uh, because we really believe what we talk about, and that is that Jesus is actually who he claims to be. And so uh, I'm glad you got to witness that and, uh, and to do the right thing, like they did in the first century, to pray uh, while we're together uh, for these people. And uh, uh, we expect that God will answer those prayers, whether you're going to Malawi or Honduras or to the many places over here, and our graduates going off uh, into the job markets, uh, uh, carrying uh, Jesus with them, that... Uh, uh, God is going to answer those prayers. And so we're thankful, and I'm excited about that and look forward to hearing about the wonderful things that take place. Hope you got an outline as you came in. If it helps you to fill it out as we go through, uh, feel free to uh, uh, do, do so, and you can ignore it if you wish. Just listen to what I have to say. <clears throat> Everyone here, I'm sure, knows that from, I guess, grade school, history, American history, uh, we had a president named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, he noticed that at White House receptions, when he was in the receiving line greeting people, it seemed to him that nobody was really paying attention to what he said. So he actually decided on one occasion to test this. As the people walked through, he extended his hand. He flashed them a smile and said, how are you? It's good to see you. Weather's fine. I just murdered my grandmother this morning. And sure enough, person after person filed by him, responding with these kind of token, perfunctory responses. How lovely. Mr. President, keep up the good work. Nobody was listening. Until one foreign diplomat passed by, and President Roosevelt extended his hand, flashed a smile, said, weather is fine, good to meet you. I just murdered my grandmother this morning. And this diplomat leaned in and said softly, well, Mr. President, I'm sure she had it coming. Today, on behalf of God, I would like to ask you, is anyone really listening today? I don't mean just this segment of time, but are we really listening? Now, if you've already noted, James is more concerned, as we talked about in the very introductory lesson of this series on James, about walking the walk, not just talking about it, 
that he wants our faith to hit the streets. Because as we live out our faith, we're going to do the one thing that James keeps talking about, and that is use the word mature. We're going to grow up. And this is only going to happen if we do one fundamental thing. Listen to God. Last time, we ended in verse 18 of chapter 1, where he said this. He chose us. He chose to give us a birth through the word of truth. That's what birthed us. It is the powerful, living word of God. I hope you paid attention as you sang all those songs because it talked about all these things about listening to the word of God. Now today, James is going to tell us that if we want this new life that God has given to us to grow, we're going to have to keep listening to that word, to the very thing that gave us birth in the first place. And that's why we've got to be sure that we're really getting good reception when we say we're listening to God. So I want you to pick up with me in verse 19 and read as we continue here. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word of God planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and he continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, notice Already, this is the second time in the first chapter of James, he hasn't even launched yet, that he has warned us about one thing, and that is being, notice, deceived. Back in verse 16, we looked at this last time, he tells us not to be deceived about the character of God. You want to know the truth about God? God is good. God is always good. God is a giving God. So if you've got problems, the first place you ought to look is not blame him, but look in. Because most likely, you're the cause of the struggles and the problems in your own life. And here, he tells us not to be deceived about the character of God's word. That's the intent of his word. It's not enough for us just to sit here and listen passively to these things being said. So you see on your outline, there at the top, the first thing that prevents me from listening to God, the first thing that prevents me from hearing him clearly is what? self Deception. Have you ever, ever stopped to notice in the New Testament how often we're told, do not be deceived? You remember when God addressed the church in Laodicea, book of Revelation? And we know this one because this is the one where God says, you got a problem, you are lukewarm. But I want you to know that was not their fundamental problem because there was a cure, Jesus said, for lukewarmness. It was repentance, change. You see, the heart of their problem, what was really hanging them up, is that they were deceived. 
Jesus said, look, you Laodiceans are walking around with this kind of wealthy sense of entitlement. You think you've got it all together, but you're oblivious to the fact that really you're poor, pitiful, and blind. And so oftentimes our problems is really that we just don't see ourselves clearly, do we? And James is telling us now that the way to battle deception is to intentionally receive the truth. Now, I'm going to jump from this text here because it's at this moment that Peter actually mirrors what James says. And I want to look at this text and it'll flavor what James has to say in the first chapter, verse 23. You have been born again. Sound familiar? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Just like James, we are birthed through the word. So now, how are we going to grow up in this? Just like James says, notice, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that it's good. God loves us enough to save us right where you and I am. But he also loves us enough not to leave us there. And the agent of that change, the agent of that change, you see, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a fire that burns away and refines our character. But understand that the instrument of the Spirit, the fuel that actually keeps that fire burning is what? The Word of God. No word, no fire. We quench the Spirit simply by ignoring what God has to say. And so if we really want God to change our lives, we have to intentionally open up our hearts and drink it in. Guzzle it. Crave it. Peter says. And James says that we that he wants everyone to do this. He wants each individual to pursue this. In other words, it's got to be personal. I cannot do this for you. And you cannot do this for me. Any more than a baby can drink extra milk for another baby. It can't happen. So it's got to be personal. But again, what is our problem? Our problem is deception. Oftentimes we think that we're tuning in clearly to God when we're not. And the reason we're not is because there's too much static going on in our lives to hear what he has to say. And so James is going to talk to us today about some things that hinder are receiving God's word into our life. We might call it today distortions of the heart. On your outline, the first one is simply this. A defensive heart. I heard a story about a person, apparently, and this is a true story as I understand it, who bought a radio. He brought it home. He placed it on top of his refrigerator. He tuned it into WSM Nashville, the home of the Grand Ole Opry. And then he did, did something very peculiar. He took a pair of pliers and he yanked off every knob on that radio to prevent anyone from changing it. I mean, he had turned it into what he wanted to hear, and that's all he wanted to hear. And he was determined to limit his reception to that one thing. 
Now, I guess that's okay with radios, but I'm not so sure it's a good thing spiritually. For example, have you ever known people who are very inflexible, who have all the answers that they want, and they refuse to entertain and think through anything else? And I'll tell you, they're easy to spot. Because, first of all, they are slow to respect anyone else's view. They are quick to speak out their own particular view. And they are also quick to hold in contempt anyone who doesn't see things as they do. But James tells us and wants us to realize that we do not reflect the righteousness of God with anger. When we possess that kind of disposition, we're not really hearing God. Dave Barry, well-known humorist, uh, uh, a columnist in Miami, uh, wrote this tongue-in-cheek segment about himself. He says, I argue very well. Ask any of my remaining friends. I can win an argument on any topic against any opponent, People know this and steer clear of me at parties. Why, often, as a sign of great respect, they don't even invite me. A contentious, defensive, conceited heart pours poison over the very place where God is trying to put his seed. And it hurts us. You remember this one. This is a standard one to think about in this context. Acts 17, when Paul and Silas went on the second missionary trip, they went over to Greece for the first time, and they ended up in the city of Thessalonica. Do you remember this? And when they got there, they began to teach the Jews, and they challenged them on their long-held beliefs about what they thought the Messiah was, and what ended up happening is the Jews got angry. I mean, Paul was bringing insights from the scriptures that they had never entertained before. And so rather than considering, thinking, having an open heart, they started a riot and literally ran these guys out of town. And so they ended up about 50 miles away in an out-of-the-way place, by the way, called Berea. And here the scriptures have a very interesting way of contrasting the Thessalonians from the Bereans. In verse 11, it says this, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to what Paul, to Paul's message. And they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. They were not gullible, but they were extremely teachable. And if we're going to be teachable, we have got to open up our hearts. What a great attitude they had. I have a quote. I've got more than one, but one of the quotes on the back of my Bible, I think about it a lot. I think I've shared it with you before. On your outlines, is it truth that drives me? Or is it fear that I might have been wrong so long? We have to have a teachable spirit if we're really going to tune in to God clearly. 
Second distortion of the heart is a polluted heart. Again, verse 24, what did James say? Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And then notice, humbly accept the word planted in, in, in you. In other words, before God can plant in your heart, you're going to have to purge the things that are interfering with the voice of God. Now this word filth is really kind of interesting. It has its own kind of word picture to it. It's a derivative of a medical term that actually means wax in the ear. Put that one together. And so the word picture that James is using here is this. On your outlines, if we turn a blind eye toward the sin in our lives, it plugs up our ears so that we cannot hear the word of God even as you sit there listening to it. Remember the the story of David when Nathan was sent by God to talk to David? In the the wake of, you know, the sex scandal and all the cover-up that followed? And you remember how Nathan told David a story now, David thought it was a true story. He didn't think it was metaphorical. He thought it was, that Nathan was telling him about some guy down the block. And he says, David, there's this poor man, and he has one little lamb. And I mean that lamb is like a pet. It even sleeps with him. It's dear to him. And he's got, this poor man's got a next-door neighbor who's very rich, who has got flocks of sheep. And one day that rich man had a guest come, and rather than take one from among the many nameless sheep amongst his flock, he went over next door and confiscated that one man's sheep to sacrifice it so he could feed this guest that came over to his house. And you remember what happened at that point? It said David jumped off his throne and says, That guy surely deserves to die. And of course, there's where those, those incisive words came. When Nathan said, you are that man. Now David is sitting there saying, amen, brother, preach on, Nathan. I'm agreeing with you, friend. And yet as obvious as that story's association to David is, I mean, how could he miss it? It never dawned on David that it was about him. Why? Because if you know the story at that particular moment in his life, David was refusing to deal with the sins in his life, and his unaddressed, unconfessed sin kept him from getting the point, even when God was sitting there talking to him face to face. Now, Jesus often used the metaphor of how the word is what? Like a seed, and our hearts are like soil. And James picks up on this metaphor from his elder brother about how the word is planted in. Notice the idea of taking root inside of our hearts. Now, I'm not a gardener, but I know this. 
If I want to grow tomatoes, I don't just grab a handful of tomato seeds, find some weed-infested plot of land, throw it there, come back a couple weeks later and find a healthy, vibrant uh, garden of tomatoes. I know this. If I'm going to have a productive garden, I'm going to have to first pull the weeds out. Otherwise, what are the weeds going to do? They're going to choke out the life of what I'm trying to grow there. Now, we always talk about how powerful the Word of God is. And by the way, it is. But even Jesus knew. Even Jesus knew that if you put God's word in bad soil, in cluttered soil, you won't get what you're looking for. The great evangelist D.L. Moody used to put it this way, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. I love the way the message translates verse 21. In simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with his word. Don't you love that? Third and final distortion is a flippant heart. And the point I'm trying to make here, in other words, we don't welcome the word into our lives with the passion, the craving that it really deserves. Think about it. Have you ever gotten a love letter? Those of us who are married, maybe from your, you know, your current spouse back when you were dating on the beginning end of this thing, you're dating someone, they send you a special note, but you receive a love letter from someone that you care about. Is it hard to translate how you read that thing? What do you do with it? When you read it with just like this tremendous focus, you're, you're drinking it in so fast you can't get to the words fast enough, you'll read it forward, backwards. I mean, you just absorb this thing, don't you? And then you put it in your archives, come back and read it again. James tells us that it's the difference between a glance and a gaze. Some people just glance at the word. And some people gaze. It's the same word, he says, they looked intently. It's the same word that the Gospel of John uses when it talks about Peter and John when they went in and looked at the tomb. You remember that story? Do you think that when they got message from Mary Magdalene that the tomb was empty? Remember there was that foot race? John and Peter headed off toward the tomb. John got there first. And it says that they went in and they took a look. Do you think that that was a casual glance? Or do you think they took in every detail and just drank it in? They didn't understand it, but they drank it in. And that's where all those resurrection eyewitness pieces of information are coming to you from. From their seeing and experiencing this. Aren't you glad they didn't just glance at it and walk out? 
You see, that's how we are supposed to approach the Word of God. Now, gazers have two habits that set them apart from from glancers. Number one is meditation. David talks in the Psalms what? I meditate on your word day and night. Now, I know, I know, listen to me, I know what you're thinking, some of you. You hear this word, and you think this is a kind of a spiritual overdose for eccentrics. You do. And you think, I don't know how to do this. You know, meditate. Get in the posture. Hum. You know. But I want you to know that's not true. And I'll tell you why. Hear me. How many in this room worry? Go ahead, raise your hand. If you ever worried, just raise your hand. Hold it up. If you didn't raise your hand, you ain't listening. <laughs> if you can worry, you can meditate. If you can spend an hour worrying about all the bad things in your life, you can think about all the good things in your life. And that's exactly what meditation is. It's taking something good from the Word of God and just dwelling on it for a little while. That's all it is. You can do this. Number two is memorization. Psalm 119, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin. You might not realize this. But I hope you'll pause to stop and think about this for just a moment. First century church, put yourself where they were. Those in the early church did not have a canonized, bound copy of the New Testament. You realize that, don't you? In fact, none of them had a copy of it. You know what they had to depend solely on? When they gathered together to worship, and you'll notice that Paul will speak about this to Timothy and Titus. He says, pay attention to these, he says, the public reading of scriptures. As these letters began to circulate around the churches, they would come together and they would read them. And that was the only exposure these people had to the word. Verbatim. And when they sat there listening, those were really thirsty for God. It sifted through people. When they were really thirsty for God, what they would do through those repeated uh, readings was to store the word of God up in their memory. And that's how they faced life. That's how they, 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 they engaged spiritual warfare, just like Jesus did as he faced off with Satan. There's a parable about a man who was walking along a road, and when he heard a voice from heaven, and the voice said, pick up a handful of, of, of pebbles and place them in your pocket, and tomorrow you will be both happy and sad. 
So he reached down, he grabbed a few pebbles, placed them in his pocket. He woke up the next day, reached into his pocket, only to realize that all of those pebbles had turned into diamonds and emeralds and rubies. And he was happy that he actually possessed such precious gems, and he was regretful that he didn't pick up a whole lot more. Translation, you'll always be happy for every word of God you intentionally store up in your heart, and you will always regret that you haven't stored up more. People, this is not spiritual overdose. If you want to go from the memory to the heart, you've got to memorize and then meditate. You can do this. Well, let me end with this. Listening to the truth is not an end in itself, is it? Any more than looking into a mirror is an end in itself. Isn't this James' point? What's the reason that we look into a mirror? Isn't it to see what needs to be altered in our appearance and then make those changes, right? And so to listen to the Word and not open ourselves up to God and see the reflection and, and, and want to let God mold and landscape our life through this, through this kind of intentional receiving and humility of letting the Word take root in our hearts. If we don't do that, that's to miss the whole point. The whole point is a transformed character, isn't it? And we look into the mirror of God's word and it reflects back to us what in our character needs to be changed. Why? In order, James says, to give us a blessed life. Now notice that James calls the word, we're almost done, the perfect law that gives freedom or perfect law of liberty. Now, If you're like me, you don't usually tend to think of law and freedom in the same sentence, unless they're somehow in opposition to one another, right? But James didn't. Remember the children of Israel, the Exodus, been slaves for 400 years. God frees them from slavery. He brings them to Sinai, and he says, now I want to give you my law. Question. Did God bring them all the way out of Egypt to this place just so that he could make them slaves again? No. So what's the purpose of this law? It was not to enslave Israel. It was to safeguard their new found freedom. It was to teach them how to live a life so that The empty way of life that they once had now blossoms, and it's full, and it's blessed. That's why he did this. And that's what the Word of God is for. It is not a burden to us. It is not to make our lives dull and miserable until heaven finally shows up. Let me tell you something. If you're bored... 
the reason you're bored is because you don't seek the blessing. That's the truth. You see it on your outlines there. It's already up on the screen. We receive the word into our hearts so that we can be blessed. Hadn't Spurgeon, a famous British preacher, preached back in the mid-late uh, 1800s, put it this way. A Bible falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. And so... The question today is not, do you have the word? The question is, does the word have you? Not have you marked it up, which is a good thing to do, but has the word marked up you? Anybody listening? If you have, and on any level you want to seek the help of this church family, you can do one of two things. You can wait to the closing song and just quietly drift to the back, and you'll find our shepherds back there, and they would love to just meet you and talk to you, and if need be, just go off to a quiet room and pray together. If you need uh, uh, all of us, you can come forward right now and seek the prayers or the blessings, whatever you seek, now as we stand and as we sing. Holy word.